cutting edge revolutionary technology out there, uh, specifically narrow and wide web printers. A myth right now is that really high quality print is gonna be some kind of a litho. Yeah, I love this show, man. So we have a lot of new products. How kids have a career path, tremendous opportunities for them to grow through their career path. To me, it's a game changer. Welcome to Ink and Updates, your touch point for the flexographic industry. Stay informed about industry news and advertise your business or service to the community. Hello, and welcome to Ink and Updates, our podcast brought to you by Interactive Inks and Coatings. I'm Craig Tinarella, the Director of Operations here. You can reach me at CRTinarella on Twitter. Uh, usually I'm joined by Tom Brennan, our Customer Service Manager, but uh, Tom is off sunning himself somewhere in northern Minnesota, where I think the current temperature is like 30 degrees, so not the destination I would personally choose for spring break, but we wish him the best on the same. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to do a show on color. I'll be attempting to boil down a very complex subject into bite-sized pieces, with just a little history sprinkled in and hopefully not too much to bore you. To fill in and help me articulate our subject, I have with me one of our employees here, Josh, who happened to major in marketing and management. Say hi, Josh. Hi, everybody. Part of my background is a degree in graphic communication. So some of what Josh and I do on a daily basis is attempt to communicate our products and services in a clear and precise manner. Now, we are business-to-business communication, or B2B sales which is a little different, but our customers are primarily printing consumer products. So the color communication and repeatability becomes critical. Brands want their products communicated to the consumer exactly how they designed it. That job, at least in the flexo industry, primarily falls on printers. And it is our job as ink technicians to supply our customers with all the tools necessary to accomplish accurate color communication. Color influences our emotions at the point of purchase as consumers. So reds and yellows, for example, they tend to trigger hunger and excitement. So if I was opening a restaurant and I was relying on passerbys to decide that maybe a quick bite to eat isn't such a bad idea, I might use reds and yellows in my marketing campaign. It's also very valuable for brand recognition. Color is just as recognizable as a logo is. That's why if a color is off, a consumer might actually think it's a knockoff product or or a counterfeit. But most importantly, color consistency communicates quality and dependability. Every time you buy this product, it's going to look the same, it's going to feel the same, it's going to work the same. Dependability is critical. The issue with communicating it is color is subjective. We all see things differently, so we tend to associate color with objects uh, that we see in nature or that we see around the, in our everyday lives. For example, maroon, rose, wine, cardinal, those are all... Reds. Red hues, exactly. But our perception of wine, or cardinal red, is very subjective. Maybe the last glass of red wine that I had isn't exactly the same glass of red wine that you had. And that's how we're going to, our mind will automatically kind of go to that. So it's extremely subjective. And there's a number of variables that we have to consider when we actually see color. Our perception of it changes based on a number of different variables. The biggest and most important is, of course, the light source. Color is light reflecting off of surfaces, which is then received by the eye and sent to the brain for interpretation. If you are designing a label that would be viewed in a grocery store, you're going to have to take into consideration that many standard light bulbs out there emit a reddish hue. The human eye detects colors between 400 and 700 nanometers. These are wavelengths. The way I like to think about it is Roy G. Biv. I don't know if I remember this from grade school, but it's been stuck in there forever. Roy G. Biv in reverse. At 700 nanometers is your red. Above red is infrared. You can't see it, but it's there. All the way down at 400 nanometers is violet. Beyond violet is ultraviolet. You can't see it, but it's there. And Roy G. Biv is everything in between. So red, orange, yellow, green is right in the middle, sitting around 550 nanometers. Blue, indigo, violet. 
Roy G. Biv, that's our visual spectrum. There's your rainbow. So the eye has three types of color-sensitive photochemicals called rhodopsins. Rhodopsins are depleted by the cone cells in our eyes, and they can take several minutes to be replaced. These are red, green, and blue, or chemicals that generally help us see red, generally help us see green hues, and generally help us see blue hues. The longer we stare at something, the more blurred the differences in these hues become. This is known as retinal fatigue. If you've ever seen a number of managers or quality technicians standing around a light booth, at first they might have detected something slightly off about the color, so they'll call in their colleagues and their pressmen and their quality managers, and they'll sit around and they'll take a good hard look. The irony being, the longer they stare at the color, the better the color is going to start to appear. As their odapsins are depleted, they begin to lose their ability to distinguish the difference between any colors. A good colorist makes their decision in a few seconds, writes down their notes, and moves their eyes to a neutral gray or a white sheet of paper to prevent them from actually depleting all the odapsins that they have for their future color quality procedures. Yeah, the old adage is um, your first guess is usually the best one, and in this case it's actually right. Yeah, absolutely. In this case it is. So setting aside retinal fatigue, there are actually a huge number of things that affect how we perceive our color. The most notable is the background and surrounding area, which is why light booths are very popular and important. But also the age of the individual. The older the eye, the less accurate. The size of the object, whether or not you wear glasses or have contacts, maybe you're on medication. Maybe you drank too much coffee or had a poor night's sleep. Maybe you were out with a salesman and had a two-martini lunch. All these things can affect how we perceive color and how we analyze color. This is all assuming that you actually have perfect color vision, which many people just don't. If you're a woman, you are far less likely to actually have color problems. Whereas man, I think it's one out of every eight starts to see color problems. Mm -hmm. So our perception of color is affected by almost anything. Um, if you ever want to test your color perception and your color abilities, Moncel has a number of color tests that are uh, they're great, actually. And you can find a few of them online. I'm pretty sure they're free. The set actually costs like 700 bucks. <laughs> kind of expensive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the question becomes... With all of these complications in communicating color, how do we accurately do it? And the answer is, we give it coordinates. The first person to develop a quote-unquote color diagram was Richard Hunter in the 1940s. This diagram was dubbed the Hunter LAB. Hunter was building upon a color theory developed by Munsell in the early 1900s, of which, through a series of color experiments, he began to articulate color as light, chroma, and hue. Hunter's method uh, let you pinpoint a location on a graph and objectively communicate color to another person. LAB values represent physical directions on a graph, where the L value is your lightness and is represented from 0, which is absolute back, all the way up to 100, which is absolute white. Then you have your A axis and your B axis. Positive A values move you to the red side, where negative A values move you to the green side. Positive B values move you to the yellow side, where negative B values move you to the blue side a two-dimensional map representing three-dimensional color space. These concepts are difficult to kind of get across in a podcast, but I'm hoping that the individuals listening to me right now kind of have some uh, introduction into color quality software and can picture an LAB screen in their mind. So take a right at blue, and if you hit green, you've gone too far. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So anyway, once it became possible to give color coordinates in color space, then the question became, how close do you need to get when replicating a color to consider it a color match? With this question, tolerancing was born. What is your acceptable margin of error? And who gets to answer that question? Human vision and computer calculations may not always line up, but the gap between them is closing every day. 
So earlier methods of tolerancing basically created a cube around the target color in space. So you had your LAB values, and they'd build a mathematical cube around it. In the dead center of your cube was your target color. The idea was that if you get your color inside the cube, you have successfully matched that color, at least mathematically. And you can make the cube bigger or smaller depending on how tight you wanted your margins of error to be. Under a 2.0 delta is most commonly considered the acceptable margin for error in mathematical color quality. Essentially, after all the comparison math is done, if your delta value is under a 2, you're golden. But there was a problem with this method. The human eye, as it turns out, detects changes in appearance more dramatically with some color variations and less dramatically in others. So perception ellipsoids began their development. Perception ellipsoids put football-like ellipses around the target rather than a cube. Now we're talking American football here. We're not talking soccer. So if you can imagine, the target in the center of the football, the tolerance allowed from the nose of the football to the center is much greater than the tolerance allowed from the side of the football to the center. These perception ellipsoids more closely replicated the human eye and the human perception. In 1988, the Color Measurement Committee announced a tolerance method known as Delta CMC. Now, the Color, Me Color Measurement Committee was, from my understanding of it, a bunch of UK businessmen who were having issues with mathematical color matching and having their products returned to them because they were not visually approved. This method of CMC changed everything and incorporated math which automatically changed the size and shape of these football-like ellipsoids based on the target color's coordinates in color space and was based on years of color perception research because we might see color changes in the yellow hues more dramatically than we'll see color changes in like a dark blue hue. So now we had this awesome math, but we were still lacking the computer power necessary to compute these massive amount of math equations, which of course this problem was solved shortly thereafter. Today your average desktop computer can run the most advanced color quality software available and modifications to the CMC tolerancing method, the math equation, like DE2000, are constantly pushing closer and closer to eliminating the difference between good math and bad color. So with today's methods, we have our coordinates and color space, we have our tolerancing methods, and we have our computing power. Now let me throw one more wrench in the works, metameric pairs, or metamerism. Metamerism is the phenomenon where two colors may appear identical under one light source, or completely different under another. Even though we have the same coordinates in space, we likely use different methods to achieve that color. Whether you're in textiles or automobiles or digital printing, it's all different applications trying to achieve the same brand color. And all of those applications and materials reflect light differently. I like to picture the target as a flag on a mountain. There may be a thousand ways to climb that mountain, and the path we choose is going to depend on the tools that we have available to us and the quality of our Sherpa. Our guide. Did you, does it, do people know what a Sherpa is? I, I do. I'm not sure. Okay. So a Sherpa is a mountain guide. So in this analogy, the Sherpa is the formulation engine, like in Formulation 6. We need something to do the math of that color. The quality of that guide is dependent on how well we calibrated that formulation software. And the tools available to us is our pigment selection and application type. Those are the things that are going to determine how we climb our mountain and plant our flag within an industry-acceptable margin, of course. For this reason, it was important for the industries to start to standardize, more or less, on the conditions of which a color is to be replicated. In our industry, the fluxographic industry, the census seems to be what's called D52, measured with a 045-degree instrument using DECMC or DE2000 as the tolerancing method. D50 is a mathematical representation of noon sky daylight, 
A, using a 045 degree instrument, or what's called a specular excluded instrument, is an instrument that is meant to exclude the effects of gloss and represent exactly how the human eye would see the color. These 045 degree instruments are known as spectrodensitometers. These are the devices that physically measure a color sample under a given light source, sending its unique fingerprint in the form of raw spectral data to the color quality software for analysis. Brand owners will often stipulate a different light source based on the conditions of which their products will be viewed by their consumers. It is critical to get all the information up front before attempting to replicate a color for all of these reasons. So there you have it. That was a very boiled down version of color communication and replication. Color is important. It portrays a message and helps consumers recognize your brand. Using a quality Sherpa is just as important as understanding why one is required. With that, Josh, if you could please accurately communicate these colors to our audience. L star, 42.1. A star, 64.4. B star, 26.7. L star, 100. A star, 0. B star, 0. L star, 15.4. A star, 7.0. B star, negative 41.8. There you go. Now, if you view those colors at noon with a clear blue sky, according to Wikipedia at least, you'd be looking at the true red, white, and blue. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate you listening on our Quick Color Communication podcast. You can reach me at CR Tinarella on Twitter. Thank you again and have a great day.